Okay, um, I have changed my mind on that Labor Day class in a couple of weeks, as in the email. I talked about going through Poitras' chance in the sovereignty of God, what with all of the talk about time and chance in Ecclesiastes. But I'm not going to attempt to do a whole book in one Sunday school class. Instead, make notes, bring your thoughts. On Labor Day weekend, that Sunday, we'll have a Sunday school to review everything and uh, any questions. It's going to be you guys talking. Um, Questions or uh, insights, favorite verses, things like that. It's a very pretty picture up here, Matt. Make your artwork. Thank you. Oh, it gets better. Um, Turn to Job 38. Job 38, 1 through 18. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for glory. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, this far you may come, but no farther, and here your proud waves must stop. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It takes on form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld. From the upraised arm, and the upraised arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea, or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for your good Holy Spirit. He is our comforter. Holy Spirit, we thank you. You are our helper. We thank you for the good word of God. We thank you for helping us to understand Ecclesiastes. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is Solomon's journey. The journey we walked on through with him through 12 chapters is coming to its end. This is finally Solomon's triumph, meaning he explains his creator's triumph. Solomon wrote elsewhere in Proverbs 1, 5 through 7, a wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma, it literally says that, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. But are Christians the only one, a question for you, with a Lord? Yes or no? Are Christians the only one with a Lord? Who ultimately is the unbeliever's Lord, in their opinion? Themselves. 
Many recognize that today's text, I'm going to lop off 8, 12, 8, and put it on next week. 11, 7 to 12, 7 is a single poem. And perhaps it would be useful to compare and contrast Solomon's despondent opening poem in chapter 1 with the glorious poetic conclusion here. There, remember, it was a dirge to the endless round. Here, it is an ode to rejoicing and remembrance. Rejoicing governs 11, 8 through 10, and remembering governs 12, 1 through 7. In opening our study in Ecclesiastes 1, 2, I said, I'm willing to bet that the phrase you first think of when you hear Ecclesiastes mentioned is vanity of vanities. I hope you'll agree after today's class, the phrase to recall when hearing mention of Ecclesiastes is not vanity of vanities, but rejoice and remember. Mike Leeton says uh, verses 7 through 10 here, God intends for us not only a life of faith, but also one of joy. Seven and following states the fact of joy. Nine and following calls on us to realize it in practice. In this poem, we'll see contrast between light and darkness, and it begins right away. With the proverb in verse seven. Truly, the light is sweet. And it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. Solomon says it's pleasant to behold the sun. The opening poem in chapter 1, the sun represented yet another proof of the endless round. The winds that whirl about on their circuit north and south. Rivers never filling the oceans, yet never emptying. Because the water just makes its round. Verse 5, the sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The eye is not satisfied nor the ear filled with hearing. The generations come and go. And in verse 9 of chapter 1, there's nothing new under the sun. What has changed for Solomon? Michael Eaton again. To see the sun means not just to live, but to live joyfully. Psalm 108, 2 through 3, the psalmist says, Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn, the sun. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples, and I will sing praises to you among the nations. Michael Eaton goes on to say, of verse 7, Sweet, good, pleasant. The twofold description implies that life is not only good in itself, but that it's to be savored with enthusiasm, as one might enjoy honey. Think of Psalm 34, 8. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. So this is Solomon moving toward a resolution of his struggle between Habel, vanity or enigma, and the affirmation of joy before death had overshadowed light. Remember Ecclesiastes 2, 13 to 14, after his royal experiment. I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet, and this is a big, ugly yet, I myself perceived that the same event, death, happens to them all. You can see it overshadowing the light back then. 
Let's read 8 through 10. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. I should say 8 through 10. This is the final seventh of seven carpe diem passages. Seizing the day with joy and the good things of life that God gifts us. Verse 8 through 10. If a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these God will bring you into judgment. Therefore remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh. For childhood and youth are vanity. Could someone bring me some water? I appreciate it. Thank you. Craig Bartholomew writes, For the first time in the Carpe Diem passages, the enigma of life is set in the context of joy. Surrounded by joy, this little statement Let him remember the days of darkness. Surely an an enigma, Solomon would say. But look where it's surrounded by the beginning of verse 8 and 9 and 10. It is set in the context of joy. Not the other way around. Before it was just vanity and vanity and vanity. A little bit of joy, vanity and vanity. Here you see a Solomon, a, a change in Solomon's perspective. Thank you, Dave. David. Like a beacon alerting us to a major shift In Kohelet's perspective and struggle, Bartholomew says, One must still remember the days of darkness, for all that is coming is an enigmatic vanity. The Carpe Diem passages were all about joy and rejoicing. Remembering had yet to be a part of a Carpe Diem passage until now. Verse 8, joy is affirmed for all ages. In all of one's years. But Solomon says to the same rejoicing man, remember the days of trial and calamity, the days of darkness, all those vanities and enigmas Solomon saw under the sun. You remember, and this probably isn't even an exhaustive list. Wickedness in the seat of judgment, sin in the place of righteousness, bribery, oppression of the poor, anger in the bosom of fools, Foolish kings, old and foolish kings who would be admonished no more. Solitariness, foolishness in the place of worship. A fickle populace who doesn't appreciate wisdom. Laziness, the love of money. All the vanities and enigmas that have come. And so we'll keep coming. Rejoice and enjoy life now, Solomon says. While we are still under the sun. Before death overtakes us. This makes joy an urgent matter. And what can the rejoicing person learn from darkness and hard times? Consider Ecclesiastes 7.14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely, God has appointed the one as well as the other. They're both from God. Michael Eaton also writes of the vanities and mysteries of life. They mean that life does not yield up its joys easily. This is really perspective changing for me. For this reason, passivity 
cannot lead to a life of joy. It is the vanity of so many of life's events and uncertainties that makes effort on the part of man so necessary. Otherwise, we're victims, too discouraged to act, too afraid to venture forth, and so unable to rejoice. We must pursue rejoicing actively. In verse 9, we see that this command to rejoice, well, it's a command. It's the call to joy. In your youth and throughout your life under the sun. This is no different than Paul in 4.6 of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. And again, Paul says, rejoice. Solomon commands the youth, which would be the usual students of the wisdom teachers, to walk in the ways of their hearts and in the sight of their eyes. Corinthians, uh, one of the Corinthians, I didn't write it down, 1031, says, whether therefore you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now you'll remember in one of the introductory lessons, I asked you to identify, read it through, and identify difficult verses in Ecclesiastes. I gotta say, back then, verse 9 was tough for me on that first read-through. I think, I thought, isn't that dangerous? What about the wicked heart of man, Solomon? You should know. What about covetous eyes that just gobble up everything they see? You're telling him to fill up his heart and his eyes? Is is Solomon commanding the youth to do the very same sins he did in his royal experiment in chapter 2? No. This is Solomon commanding the youth to go, to rejoice, to be of good cheer, to walk in the ways of a heart that rejoices in the good day, the blessings that God has appointed. Remember all the Carpe Diem passages. Eating as a blessing, drinking as a blessing, rejoicing or enjoying the wife of your youth as a blessing. They're a picture of eternal joy in heaven. Solomon also calls the youth to rejoice always, even in the days of darkness, which God has appointed. But what about all the vanity and enigma that plagued Solomon's existence? Verse 9, towards the end. But know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. You see, at this point, Solomon's almost fully arrived at truth in his journey. We rejoice because we are commanded to. And so all of Solomon's vanities and enigmas do matter. Why? Why? Because we are we uh, because future judgment is certain. Like our poem on times and seasons in chapter three, perhaps another stanza: a time for sin and a time for judgment. Craig Bartholomew says here, the judgment is against those who did not embrace life as God's gift. Failure to rejoice will be accounted for. Isn't it easier to think of Christ suffering and dying for our sins? Of lust, lying, oppression, covetousness, 
murdering our brother Abel in our heart? It's sobering to think. He also died for our for our sins of lack of joy, depression, despair. A seeming inability to smile. Or maybe the sin of wearing masks. In Deuteronomy 28, 47 to 48. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart. For the abundance of everything. Therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and in need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. You see, hunger, thirst, nakedness. This is the opposite of the Carpe Diem passages. And their provision and their blessing as a good gift. This is the opposite of Matthew 6. To eat, to drink, clothing the birds of the air are provided for the lilies of the field the lilies of the field are provided for in their clothing yet i say to you not even solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one of these matthew 6:33 was our youth group anthem uh, help me <laughs> seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you to our youth, if you haven't read Matthew 6, read it. I love this from David Gibson. He's the uh, go to a funeral and learn guy. Living life backward, letting death teach you. He quotes Doug Jones. Why haven't we had giant church councils on the nature of joy? Or different schools of thought that wrestle over the intricacies of joy? Why don't our creeds dedicate long sections to expositing the nature of joy for the people of God? Gibson goes on to say, not to live gladly, joyfully, and not to drink deeply from the wells of abundant goodness that God has lavished on us is sin. And it is sin because it's a denial of who he is. It's a repetition of the first sin, the primal sin of pride. Adam and Eve were charging God with not being good to them. If we live as if the fallenness of the world has removed all the goodness and beauty of the world, then we've forgotten the Creator. Why not live with constant wonder at his daily provision? There's another way of living that feels constantly slighted by God and others and becomes a greenhouse for bitter roots to flourish. When we're not grateful for the little things, it's only a very short step to no longer being grateful for anything. Grumpiness is a sin. It's an attitude of heart and mind nurtured by the reign of self-pity from which the subjects of our self-made kingdom can suffer great harm because they've not treated us as we think we deserve. Verse 10. Because of all that, he says, to put away sorrow and vexation of heart. We saw in Ecclesiastes 1.18, Solomon had set his heart to know wisdom and madness and folly and wrote, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow, vexation. But here, the wise is commanded to put it away. Childhood and youth or the English Standard Version, the dawn of life, life itself, our habel, vanity and mystery, in that it points to the limits of our knowledge as what? As creatures. 
And in 12.1, we'll see how we can make that leap to the creator-creature distinction. The final chapter. Let's read 1 and 2. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come, and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. Solomon moves from rejoicing even while remembering the days of darkness in 11.8 to the other half of his journey's resolution. Here, remembering the Creator. This is Solomon's pronouncement that his autonomous methodology employed throughout the book. Remember? Observing with his eyes, I saw under the sun. And then reasoning with his crooked, fallen mind about life has been overturned. Solomon tried to create his own Garden of Eden during his sinful royal experiment in chapter 2. You'll recall how the terms in that chapter bore such similarity to the creation account. I made my works great. Vineyards, orchards, and gardens. Water pools watering the garden. Solomon tried to be creator himself, didn't he? Just as Adam and Eve. Solomon reports no more observations in this chapter you'll hear no more assertions of his autonomous control of life and death. Cred Bartholomew calls verse 1 the bridge that positively resolves the tension, those kinks and gaps in Ecclesiastes 1.15, between the Carpe Diem verses and the Habel, vanity and enigma verses. The call to remember the Creator rather than exalt oneself in autonomy is found in Deuteronomy 8. Let's turn there. 8, 11 through 20. This is amazing. It's just one of those passages I've always blown through. Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 20. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His judgments, and His statutes, which I command you today, lest... When you have eaten and are full, and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions, and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and you might, he might test you to do you good in the end. Then you say in your heart, my power, right? Autonomy. My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish as the nations which the Lord destroys before you. So you shall perish because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. So Bartholomew says about this, Remembrance in 12.1 is thus far more than mental assent. It refers to allowing the notion of God as creator to shape one's view of life and one's handling of life's enigmas now. 
It represents the radical difference between a worldview in which humankind is central and autonomous and one in which God is central. Remembering one's creator does not detract from the paradoxes of life, but reorients them in a fresh way to allow their minds and lives to be shaped by remembrance of the creator. Remembrance means consciously allowing the great acts of God to shape one's perspective in the present. This is God's rainbow of his own remembrance. Numbers 15, the children of Israel weaving into their tassels one blue thread to remember all the commandments of the Lord and to do them. This is the 12 tribes of Israel crossing the river Jordan and removing 12 stones from the dry riverbed so their children could remember the mighty hand of God. King Josiah in 2 Kings 22, rending his clothes when they found the book of the law in the house of the Lord, and he remembered. This is the exiles, remember, we read, hanging their harps on the willows of the rivers of Babylon and weeping when they remembered Zion. The people weeping in Nehemiah 8 when Ezra read them the book of the law after the exile. The whole hall of fame of God's acts in Hebrews 11. This is Stephen in Acts 7 recounting God's faithfulness to the high priest. The rest of verses 1 and 2 tell us why we should remember our creator in our youth especially. From the email, Charles Bridges. This is a youthful witness for his name. This is the bright star in the night of a miserable world. What minister would not delight in a galaxy of these stars in a spiritual horizon? Why, why, uh, why, especially in our youth, should we remember? The longer we live, the more vanity and enigma we'll encounter, won't we? The more difficult days of verse 1, we will see. The brevity of life should light a fire under us with the inevitable decline of age coming. Perhaps even a neglect of remembering the creator early in life leads to despair and saying from here, I have no pleasure in life. So this is getting the foundation of one's life right before the evil days come, before the light in verse 2 gets darker and the rain clouds keep coming with a succession of sorrows. All right, hide the wife and kids. I can't do people. I'm sorry. That's the best I can do. Glad to say this is a bad. I'm not going to the toilet. Oh boy. Okay. Where were we? It's only up from here. All right, I'm going to read three through five. This is the imagery of a house, but also a whole city sinking into decay and malaise. Afterwards, I will ask you if you see anything else in those descriptions. And a helpful verse to remember while reading these verses, after just naming the Creator in 12.1, Ecclesiastes 7.29, Truly, this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes. Remember your Creator before the difficult days come. 
In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few and those that look through the windows grow dim, when the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low, also they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way. When the almond tree blossoms, the grasshoppers a burden and desire fails. For man goes to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. What's all of that representing? Any thoughts? Old age. Old age. I'm too literal of a person to have ever noticed that. Too literal. Old age. The decline. Almost as sure as death, right? If we make it to old age. So, pull out clauses from there, and we're going to label what they might be referring to. What, what verses are you on? Three through five. Keepers of the house tremble. Any ideas? Homemakers? Okay. Um, sticking with this guy here. Um, man of the house? So, it's taken as an allusion to the hands. Uh, taking care of his house. People go backwards and forwards on these things a little bit. Strong men bow down. Any thoughts? Knees. Knees? Love it. Yeah. I'm hearing legs. Um, Curvature of the spine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, grinders cease because they are few. Okay. <laughs> it, it was a little fangy the first attempt. <laughs> um, those that look through the windows grow dim. Okay. Verse 4, doors are shut in the streets. Um, one idea is ears. Sound of grinding is low, we're back to the teeth. But more than that, speech, perhaps it affects the speech. Um, rises up at the sound of a bird. Yeah. Hard to sleep, waking up at all hours. Um, being disturbed by even the sound of a bird. This is our bed. Our bed. Um, <laughs> all the daughters of music are brought low. Charles Bridges bailed me out on this one. Daughters of music, the lungs, the voice, the hearing, the ears. Uh, let's see. Afraid of height. Right? Like maybe steps being more difficult. Being afraid of falling. Uh, afraid of terrors in the way. Perhaps an elderly person, you know, just 
afraid to go out on the street? Uh, with its difficulties? When the almond tree blossoms, do they have almonds in Georgia, Clyde? No, it's pe- pecans. Uh, it's pecans, Pe- pecans, yeah. Uh, okay. Pollen, uh, uh, sinus problems, or, you know. Okay. Gray hair? A lot of people go with gray or white hair. Uh, there's uh, the pink variety, which doesn't work for us, but there is an almond blossom that's... Um, That is uh, white. You can't smell it. Okay. The grasshopper is a burden. Could be even a small insect would be a burden. But uh, all I can think of is those ridiculous looking knees on a grasshopper. Because in, in ESV it actually says the grasshopper drags himself along. And desire fails, we'll just draw to his brain. All right. Um, uh, I forgot to do one thing, so I'm just going to do it another time. Um, No, I can do this. All right. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Randomly generate a number between 1 and 10. Four. All right, 8. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Uh, that was me. Who's this one? Who said bowing down the knees? Back here? Yeah, all right. So just a little giveaway. Um, get this Pundit's Folly book. Um, St. Clair Ferguson, when he uh, came up with the name, said a preacher called it called Solomon the Pundit. All right, verse 5. Also, they're afraid of height and of terrors in the way. <sighs> Did that? Where am I? Okay, finishing up verse 5. The daughters of music brought low in verse 4 could refer to death in the sense of mourners chanting their laments. And so, concluding verse 5, we have the mourners going about the streets. Why are they mourning? Because Solomon tells us man goes to his eternal home. Other than speaking earlier in the book of a coming judgment for every act, this is the first time Solomon holds forth an idea of eternity following life under the sun. But you still give him a look askance, right? Uh, Or do you just mean the grave is his eternal home, Solomon? And you're not wrong to ask the question, his many passages in Ecclesiastes uh, should give us pause. But hold that thought. Okay, good. We're right on schedule. Verse 6. Remember your Creator before the silver cord is loosed, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. The New King James here inserts an understood, remember your, your creator, which simply harks back to verse 1. I see that the ESV treats all of this as one sentence from verse 1, so they didn't have the need to reference back. 
it clearly is part of remembering your creator. So having uh, shown us the, the decay of man, because why? Because he sought out many schemes. Solomon now shows us what sin ultimately means for people under the sun. Death. And it's shown here in two metaphors. The image of light in the breaking of the golden lampstand. The image of water in the shattered pitcher and the broken apparatus of the well. The oil lamp in those days was a common household item. Those lamps would be made of clay, earthen vessels. But look at the value of this lamp. Gold suspended by a silver cord. We see in this metaphor the value of human life. The oil in the lamp feeding the flames of life. But the silver cord snaps and the golden lamp plunges broken into pieces. Now only darkness. The fragility of the water pitcher is seen as it breaks at the fountain. And alongside the total destruction of the pulley wheel, broken down at the well perhaps even crashing down into it. This is the final deterioration of the body with no way to draw water. Gibson in Living Life Backward, along with Solomon, remember he thought it was good to go to the house of mourning over the house of feasting. Why? You'll remember Ecclesiastes 7 too, because the living will take it to heart. That's why Gibson would say death is a teacher and says of these metaphors on death, time will see you unmade, perhaps sooner than later. The preacher takes you by the hand and asks, how then will you live? Time will see you unmade. Isn't that what the whole book of Ecclesiastes was about? The creator of creatures, wasn't it? Remember all the harking back to the language of Genesis. Solomon having clearly Genesis open before him as he wrote. What was all that for? It was so Solomon could tell us in chapter 11 to rejoice for the good hand of God in your life. Giving you little tokens of a past Eden and a coming Eden. It was so Solomon could tell us in chapter 12 to remember our creator. And you're not the creator, you're the creature. Any gold in the lamp is not intrinsic to you when all you brought were jars of clay. Any life-giving water was not made by you, lest God tell us as he humbled Job, remember this morning, 38.8, or who shut in the seas with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? We're not the creator. Well, let's return to the question in verse 5. Solomon, what do you mean? For man goes to his eternal home. Where is that and when is that? Solomon explains in verse 7. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is... I did that. We'll just keep going. Or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well. Verse 7. 
Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. This is David Gibson's great unmaking. The separation of body and soul. The unmaking of the body back into the dust from which it came. Remember Genesis 2-7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into the nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. But Charles Bridges writes that the coming resurrection of the dead, how comforting to those remaining, that every part of the redeemed dust, every atom, is under faithful guardianship. And then turning to the spirit, where does it go? It returns to God who gave it to that creator. Now we have, in our day, by comparison to Solomon, the second wisest man ever to live a pretty full-orbed view of life after death, even if we do see through a glass darkly. To the Old Testament saints like Solomon, their glass must have been especially dark. Solomon didn't have the prophets on the coming judgment. They weren't written yet. What else wasn't written yet? The New Testament. The Gospel. But isn't Solomon on to something here when he tells us to remember now our Creator in 12.1 and concludes the poem in 12.7 preaching the preacher that the Spirit returns to God who gave it. In other words, to the Creator. How did Solomon know that? It's got to be because life is gift, not gain. Solomon knew what a gift was. How? Remember, he asked the Lord for wisdom, and God gifted it to him. That and all the other things, the wonderful blessings he didn't ask for. What he did with it, and his stewardship of those resources, uh, well, it's our story too. Solomon knew... The creature never ceases its status as created. Never ceases belonging to the creator. He knew life was a gift, not meant for gain here under the sun. A gift held in trust. And I don't mean hiding it under a bushel, putting the master's coin in the ground, or saving it in a handkerchief. But investing this gift of life in service to God and neighbor. The Creator requires judgment of His creatures, a reckoning for one's righteous and unrighteous acts, sins of commission and sins of omission, because life is a God given gift. And He's righteous and just to require the same of His creatures. That's why the need of all fallen creatures who sought out many schemes is for a second gift of the Father. Salvation in Christ by faith, by grace, through faith in His name. I'm going to conclude with a citation from David Gibson's book of uh, James Russell Miller, written many, I think over a century or more ago. Old age is the harvest of all the years that have gone before 
It is the barn into which the sheaves are gathered. All old age is not beautiful. All old people are not happy. Some are very wretched with hollow, sepulchral lives. Death-like. A tomb. The important practical question is how can we so live that old age when it comes shall be beautiful and happy? It will not do to adjourn this question until the evening shadows are upon us. It will be too late to consider it. Consciously or unconsciously, we are every day helping to settle the question whether our old age shall be sweet and peaceful or bitter and wretched. We must live a useful life without idleness and selfishness. Happiness comes out of self-denial for the good of others. When one has lived to bless others, one, uh, one has many grateful, loving friends whose affection proves a wondrous source of joy when the days of feebleness come. If we would walk in the warmth of friendship's beams in the late evening time, we must seek to make ourselves loyal and faithful friends in the hours that come before. This we can do by a ministry of kindness and self-forgetfulness. Again, we must, not, we must live a pure and holy life Sinful years put thorns in the pillow on which the head of old age rests. Lives of passion and evil store away bitter fountains from which the old man has to drink. Even forgiven sins will mar the peace of old age, for the ugly scars will remain. Summing all up in one, only Christ can make any life, young or old, truly beautiful or truly happy. Only he can cure the heart's restless fever and give quietness and calmness. Only he can purify that sinful fountain within us, our corrupt nature, and make us holy. To have a peaceful and blessed ending to life, we must live it with Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we love you. How we appreciate you as the creator. How we appreciate you as the good provider who governs us and governs your creation. Fallen though it is, thank you that we look forward to great promises, Lord. God, we pray that your word would be heard in, in, in Tallahassee. Go with us now to worship. Help us to prudently walk as we go into worship. Amen.